When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast, a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for joining. On today's episode, we'll cover the latest news around Serie A, Napoli, and Europe. In part two, we'll recap round 34 of Serie A. In part 3, we'll review Napoli's win over Udinese on Sunday, and in part 4, we'll preview Napoli's next match against Parma on Wednesday. So starting with Serie A, Aurelio De Laurentiis has invited the other 19 Serie A presidents to the Ritz in Rome on Monday for a business lunch, in which he'll illustrate his proposal for the production and distribution of Serie A content. Paolo Dalpino, president of Lega Serie A, had previously proposed creating a media company which was unanimously approved At the last meeting of the presidents, the key difference between the two proposals is that Dalpino's provides for private equity investment in the media company up to a maximum of 15%, whereas De Laurentiis' plan does not seek third-party investment but instead sells the content to a greater number of broadcasters. In June, the Council of State renewed Sky's exclusive rights to web content until 2022, which is why it will be difficult for pay TV to replicate the annual payments of 800 million euros a year for the next three years. However, the bid for the 2021 to 2024 broadcasting contract is expected to open between September and November of this year, at which point the Zone, Amazon Prime, Tim Vision, and other on-demand platforms can bid. In the meantime, binding offers from investment funds interested in investing in Sedia's media company, which would sell the media rights, should start coming in. Dalpino has invited seven funds, CVC, Wanda, Bain Capital, Advent, General Atlantic, TPG, and Apollo, and the invitation has strict requirements on the bid, including that 15% cap. One of the challenges with private equity is the problem of ownership of the rights 
officially held not by the league, but by the Serie A clubs, which vary each year due to promotions and relegations. On the other hand, some presidents like De Laurentiis are reluctant to lose control over the media company and its revenues, so we'll keep an eye on this story and provide an update on the next episode. In other news, there's been a lot of talk of late about the Italian interpretation of the handball rule. Former Serie A referee and the current referee designator Nicola Rizzoli published a letter in the Gazzetta dello Sport where he addressed the handball rule. He noted that the rule itself is not for him to judge, that's up to the IFAB. What Serie A does control is how to interpret the rule as it's written. According to the rule, a handball is called if the arms are above the shoulders or if the position of the arms unnaturally increases the size of the body, and it's the latter that has resulted in the increased number of calls. Today, in fact, the rule evidently continues to punish voluntary fouls, but it also establishes criteria of punishment also for what is not voluntary. He emphasized that players are not required to defend with their arms behind their back. On the other hand, it is clear that in the case of a shot on goal or a cross in the area, increasing the space occupied by the body unnaturally is equivalent to taking a risk. Finally, he talked about the philosophical approach to handballs shared at the European level. The designators from the top five leagues meet bi-weekly by video call hosted by UEFA, and the purpose of these meetings is precisely to have the same line of vision and interpretation on the technical and use situations of the VAR. He said it's curious to observe how Italian and Spanish statistics are very similar, but distinct from the Anglo-Saxon countries, which he attributes to cultural differences. Moving on to Napoli, all indications are that Victor Osimhen will indeed sign with Napoli. On the last episode, we talked about how Di Marzio reported that the English clubs have only asked for information and have not made any formal offers. Most of the latest reports are coming from Oma Akatugba, who's a UEFA-accredited journalist and owner of OmaSports.tv, and reportedly a friend of Osimhen, so it's difficult to say whether that source is credible. To me, the fact that Osimhen follows him on Instagram or that Osimhen or his family members like his tweets do not make him credible. I do think this deal is going to happen, but we should not take everything Akatugba says as fact. That said, Akatugba was the first to report that Osman changed agents, which we know to be true. He's also reported that Osman has completed his medical and that an announcement should come on Tuesday. Akatugba was interviewed by Radio Punto Nuovo, where he said that Osman wants to join Napoli. He has been to the city twice already. He's been struck by the city, by the club's project, and all that the Napolitan life has to offer. He's read all the messages from fans and has been impressed. On the medical, he said that Osman flew into Rome on Friday, but there were so many fans and journalists waiting at Villa Stuart, which scared him a little bit, so they had the police clear the area, saying that there was no medical that day. Then he came back very early in the morning on Saturday and went back to Lille in the evening. Finally, he said that he thinks an announcement will come on Tuesday, but if not, it will be this week at the latest. Supposedly, what has stalled the announcement is issues with Osman's previous representation and image rights, which is always an issue for De Laurentiis. In other news, Napoli have filed a complaint against Roma for Roma's delegates failing to comply with the security protocol during the match between the clubs on July 5th. Apparently, Roma's representatives at the match were not respecting the minimum separation distance, which led to a lively dispute between Cristiano Giuntoli and Roma CEO Guido Fienga. Roma intend to present evidence to the National Federal Court that demonstrate that Roma indeed complied with the protocol. In the next few days, members from both sides will be heard by the courts. I'm not sure what the outcome will be, other than that relations between the clubs won't be good after this, which means any ongoing negotiations will be compromised. Napoli are reportedly the frontrunners to sign Chenzig Under, so we'll see if that ends up happening.
Moving on to Europe, the International Football Association Board, or IFAB, Board of Directors, has agreed that the football federations will have the option to continue using five substitutions for the 2020-2021 campaigns. They cited two reasons for that decision. First, some competitions that resumed in 2020 will have a much shorter offseason and summer training than they normally do. And second, many competitions will have a compressed schedule for next season as well. Another consequence of the coronavirus was the cancellation of the annual Ballon d'Or Awards. Group L'Equipe announced on Monday that there will be no 2020 edition because the conditions of the awards have not been met. They cited that you cannot do a fair comparison for players whose seasons have been cut short. They also said it would be difficult to judge performance with the changes that were made because of COVID, including playing behind closed doors, using five substitutes, and single match ties in the Champions League. We'll close with the final round of matches in La Liga. Last episode, we mentioned that Real Madrid won the title and that Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, and Sevilla had all qualified for Champions League, but Europa League and relegation were still being played for. Villarreal beat Ibar 4-0 to secure their Europa League spot. Four clubs were competing for the other two spots. Real Sociedad drew Atletico Madrid 1-1 and Granada beat Bilbao 4-0, so they both finished on 56 points. Getafe lost to Levante 1-0 and Valencia lost to Sevilla 1-0, so Sociedad and Granada will play in the Europa League. Both clubs have had excellent years. Sociedad are in the final of the Copa del Rey and Granada reached the final 8 of the cup and they're now in the Europa League in their first season after being promoted. At the bottom of the table, both Celta Vigo and Leganes drew their opponents, so Celta Vigo are safe and Leganes will be heading back to the Segunda. That will do for the news. In part 2, we'll recap the latest action in Serie A. Okay, so next we'll cover the latest action in Serie A. We'll start with the marquee match of the week, which was Juventus Lazio on Monday. Gonzalo Higuain was supposed to start in this match, but picked up a knock in warm-up, so Dybala started in his place, which was probably good news for Juventini and bad news for Laziali. Once again, Dybala was really good in this one. Jordan Lukaku was supposed to be in Lazio's lineup, but was not for disciplinary reasons. The broadcast speculated that it could be because Javid Anderson started over Lukaku in this match, Lazio were without a number of players for this match, most notably Luis Alberto and Joni. We've talked about Simone Inzaghi's unwillingness to rotate players. He was forced to rotate in this match. Danilo Cataldi, Javon Anderson, Luis Felipe, and Bastos all started in this match. And Bobby Adincani, Dennis Vavro, Andre Anderson, Luca Falbo, and Raul Moro came in off the bench. And lo and behold, this was probably Lazio's best performance since the restart. The fresh legs and youthful energy really made a difference. But they were still playing Juventus and it was the champions who nearly opened the scoring in the 11th minute when Alexandro's header hit the post and stayed out. In the 36th minute, Thomas Strakosha made an excellent save on Adrian Rabiot's shot that seemed destined for the corner. Rabiot is finally living up to expectations and could end up staying with Juventus. 
Chiro Immobile nearly opened the scoring for Lazio just before the break, but he smashed his effort from the top of the box off the post as well. At the start of the second half, Dybala had a weak shot stopped by Stracosha, who gave up a rebound to Ronaldo on the doorstep. Ronaldo touched the ball toward the goal but didn't get much on it and Lazzari cleared it off the line. Moments later, Juventus finally broke the deadlock. They were awarded a penalty kick after Ronaldo's shot was blocked by Bastos, whose arm was away from his body. Initially, it was called a free kick, but after a VAR review, Orzato confirmed that Bastos's arm was indeed inside the box. Strakosha guessed right on the penalty, but the ball was too well hit that it didn't matter. With that goal, Ronaldo tied Immobile on 29 goals for the season. Only three minutes later, Ronaldo scored his second of the match and 30th of the season. Cataldi played the ball back to Luis Felipe, who was the last man back. Felipe's first touch was too heavy, and both Dybala and Ronaldo instantly closed him down. And Before you knew it, Dybala and Ronaldo were both clear to the goal without a defender in sight. Dybala waited for Strakosha to come off his line and scored to Ronaldo, who tapped into the empty goal. Ronaldo had a few opportunities to complete the hat-trick, both from headers. One was hit hard but straight at Strakosha, and the other hit the bar and stayed out. Lazio pulled one back in the 83rd minute. Bonucci and Szczesny got mixed up on a ball over the top. Bonucci shielded the ball thinking Szczesny was coming to retrieve it, but he never did. Immobile jumped at the opportunity and got to the ball first. Bonucci attempted to clear it but caught Immobile instead, so the penalty was given. Ronaldo had a short meeting with Chesesny before the shot was taken, and like the commentators, I couldn't help but wonder if Ronaldo would have done this if any other Lazio player took the shot. Chesesny guessed the right way, but the shot was too powerful to stop, so with the goal, Immobile scored his 30th of the season, tying Ronaldo. It's the first time that two Serie A players have scored 30 or more goals in a single campaign since 1950-1951. In the 90th minute, Sergei Milinkovic-Savic nearly equalized from a free kick, from well outside the box, but Szczesny made his best save of the match to keep the ball out. So this one finished 2-1. With the loss, Lazio remain in 4th, 11 points back of Juve. Inter played Roma in the match of the day on Sunday. Roma were without Nicolo Zaniolo for this match and Chris Smalling started on the bench. Inter started Alexis Sanchez over Romelu Lukaku. Roma nearly opened the scoring in the ninth minute from a corner kick. Handanovic, who's been unusually shaky lately, mistimed his jump. That left Mancini with a free header in front of an empty goal, but it seemed he didn't expect the ball to get through and he glanced his header wide of the goal. Stefan de Vrij opened the scoring in the 15th minute from a corner kick. Not a whole lot happened after that goal until the very end of the half when Spinazzola equalized for Roma. This play started with Kolarov winning possession in his own half. Lautaro did appear to be fouled by Kolarov and VAR looked at it. In my opinion, there was clearly contact, but match official DiBello ruled that there was no foul, so the goal stood. Roma countered with Mkhitaryan who played a couple of quick passes with Dzeko before he picked out Spinazzola on the left side of the box. Spinazzola's shot was deflected by the Rai but Spinazzola was given credit for the goal. Lautaro put Inter ahead in the 54th minute after Bastoni picked out his run with a long ball over the top. Lautaro did really well to take the ball down with his first touch and finished at the far post with his second but the goal was ruled off as Lautaro was just two steps ahead on his run. Only a few minutes later Henrik Mkhitaryan put Roma ahead. VAR reviewed this goal as well as the ball appeared to ricochet off Edin Dzeko's hand, but this goal was also given. Conte finally made changes with enough time for the players to make a difference. He brought in Lukaku, Biragi, and Victor Moses in the 67th minute, and Christian Eriksen in the 69th, which was good to see. In the 71st minute, we saw why everyone was so frustrated with the handball rule. Christian Eriksen seemed to quite clearly hit the arm of Roger Ibanez in the wall, and he was jumping and turning so Ibanez did appear to make his body bigger. The wall was outside of the box, so this wouldn't have resulted in a penalty kick, but again, the rule is not being applied consistently. 
In the 86th minute, Inter were awarded a penalty. Danilo D'Ambrosio and Victor Moses chased Roma back into their own box. Spinazzola completely whiffed on the clearance and kicked Moses on the follow-through in the process. Lukaku decided to take this one for himself instead of trying to boost the confidence of a teammate, and he converted to score his 21st of the season. That was the final goal of the match, which finished 2-2. Inter are now 8 points back of Juventus. After the match, Conte blamed the schedule, which is a bit of a joke since every team plays every 3 or 4 days. I get that Inter had to play the Coppa Italia and their match day 25 match, but Juve and Napoli have played just as many games since the restart, as they both reached the final of the Coppa Italia and those two clubs are doing just fine. And 7 other clubs played their match day 25 matches, and of them, Inter have the most depth and quality in their squad. Atalanta visited the Bentagodi on Saturday. Verona started 18-year-old Eddie Salcedo over Samuel Di Carmine, and the youngster had a very good match. In the first half, the commentators accurately described him as being a pest in the most positive of ways. He did very well in hold-up play, he drew fouls, he won corners, and he pulled defenders out into areas they generally don't like to be in. Both sides like to press very high, which worked especially well for Verona, who kept a very potent attack at bay. Atalanta had very few opportunities in the first half. Verona were the ones who nearly opened the scoring in the 22nd minute. Davide Faraoni forced a good save from Pierluigi Golini. Then on the ensuing corner kick, Verona got their best chance of the half. Salcedo was given an open header, but it went just over the bar. Atalanta didn't get their first decent attempt until the 42nd minute. Zapata turned and struck the ball really well with his left foot, but Silvestri had his angles covered and made the save at the near post. Atalanta did open the scoring in the second half, though it wasn't from the patient buildup we are accustomed to seeing from La Dea. Instead, Duvan was gifted an opportunity by Corey Gunter, who overstepped the ball. Zapata jumped on the opportunity, and despite Gunter's best effort to recover, Zapata was way too strong. Even while being tugged, he got his shot off and passed Silvestri to give Atalanta the lead. This was Verona's 10th consecutive game without a clean sheet, which is arguably why they've struggled of late. Heading into this match, they had conceded two or more goals in six of their eight matches since the restart. Verona responded really well after the goal. In the 57th minute, Faraoni had a header stopped by Golini at the near post. Only two minutes later, Matteo Piscina equalized for Verona. Mario Pazalic failed to clear the ball to safety. Instead, it landed for Rachmani at the top of the box. His low hard shot was stopped by Golini, but Piscina cleaned up the mess to make the score 1-1. In the 62nd minute, Golini made another excellent save, this time on Salcedo, and then moments later, Salcedo had another shot toward the bottom corner stopped by Golini. Marco Silvestri was not to be outdone though. In between those two Salcedo chances, Silvestri made an excellent double save on Papu Gomez and Duvan Zapata. It was good to see Luis Muriel come in off the bench in the 78th minute after missing Atalanta's previous match. If you're wondering why he was wearing a Peter Cech style helmet, Muriel had slipped and hit his head on the edge of a swimming pool. The initial reports were quite serious, but fortunately he was fine. Atalanta nearly scored a late winner, but Pasolic glanced his header just wide of the goal, so this one finished 1-1. This was the type of performance we would see from Verona before football stopped. They live and die with their defense. In a match where they allowed only one goal against a very strong Atalanta team, they walked away with an impressive point. I couldn't help but think that Verona just showed PSG what they need to do to beat Atalanta in the Champions League. If you press high and mark tight, this offense can be subdued. So of the top four, Juventus were the only ones to win this round. Atalanta are now 9 points back of Juventus and remain 1 point back of Inter. Napoli beat Udinese 2-1 which we'll cover in more detail in part 3. 
Milan trounced Bologna 5-1. Milan absolutely dominated this match, which was probably their best performance since the break, and things seem to be coming together really nicely for them. There's typically not much to analyze in a blowout, so I'll quickly go over the goals. Milan opened the scoring in the 10th minute. Rebic showed great strength to fight off Danilo on the wing. Then he showed great skill to pick out Teo Hernandez's overlapping run with a backheel pass. Hernandez cut the ball back, Ibrahimovic dummied, and Alexis Salamakers picked his corner. Chalonoglu was really good in this one. He nearly scored in the 14th minute, but he got too much of the net and Skorupski made an excellent save to keep the ball out. In the 17th minute, the Rossoneri worked the ball around beautifully, leading to another Chalonoglu shot, but it was blocked by Danilo. Chalonoglu would get his goal in the 24th minute though. Orsolini played the ball back to Skorupski, whose clearance was straight at Chalonoglu. He controlled and finished to make the score 2-0. In the 36th minute, Frank Kessia nearly extended his goal-scoring streak, but his low shot from the top of the box hit the upright and stayed out. In the final minute of the first half, Takahiro Tomiyasu scored a ridiculous golazzo. He cut into his left foot at the top of the box and hit a screamer with the outside of his left boot that bent away from Donnarumma and into the roof of the goal. Up until that point, Bologna hadn't really created anything other than perhaps Orsolini's free kick that Donnarumma stopped with ease. Only a couple of minutes into the second half, Chalanoglu picked out Ismail Benacer in the middle of the pitch and he scored his first goal of the season. Then in the 57th minute, Antti Rabic made it 4. Once again, Chalanoglu was involved in this play. He received the pass from Calabria before spotting Ibra at the top of the box. Ibra touched on to Rabic who looked like he might return the pass but instead he let the ball run and turned around Tomiyasu before finishing past Skorupski. Leao nearly scored in the 68th minute after Skorupski again played his clearance low and into the middle of the pitch, straight to a Milan player. Milan were a little too cute on this play, Leao eventually got a shot through but it was cleared off the line. Davide Calabria scored the 5th in added time, again Milan passed the ball beautifully on this goal, the final score was 5-1. With the win, Milan have now taken a remarkable 20 out of 24 points since the restart. And along with Napoli, they're only 2 points back of Roma in 5th place. Sassuolo took on Cagliari, looking to continue their march toward Europa League qualification. Both sides were missing a number of players. For Sassuolo, Berardi, Magnanelli, and Burabia were all out due to suspension, while Defrel and Obiang remained sidelined due to injury. Cagliari were without Nengolan, Pellegrini, Cigarini, and Pavoletti, and Simeone started on the bench. Cagliari seemed content to sit back and allow Sassuolo to come to them. Sassuolo opened the scoring in the 12th minute from the corner kick. Paolo Farago attempted to clear the ball but instead flicked the ball back toward his own goal. Chicho Caputo was there to head home his 17th of the season and his 4th since the restart. He's been playing really well lately, he always seems to be in the right place at the right time, but it's certainly no coincidence. Early in the second half, Andrea Carboni was shown a second yellow. He really showed his immaturity on this play. He knew he was already on a yellow and that the foul he committed would be a second. Zenga's face said it all after the red card, but really he only had himself to blame. With the way Carboni was playing, it was only a matter of time before he picked up a second yellow. Even though Cagliari had barely touched the ball all match, they capitalized on literally their first opportunity in the match, which didn't come until the 63rd minute. Marco Rogue did really well to squeeze his pass through to Jao Pedro, who opened up his body to gently direct his shot toward the right side of the goal past Gianluca Pegolo. Marco Rogue also had an excellent game and Cagliari actually seemed to play more positively after the red card. They managed to hold on to the 1-1 draw. Parma lost to Sampdoria 3-2 which we'll cover in more detail in part 4. Arguably the match of the week was Genoa versus Lecce with both sides looking to avoid relegation. This was a really entertaining match, you could see the intensity, the players and the staff on the sidelines were really vocal. It was the closest thing I've seen or heard to having fans in the stadium. 
Early in the match, Babacar appeared to be followed in the box by Christian Zapata, but the foul wasn't given. Genoa opened the scoring in the 8th minute, Delorco conceded possession cheaply to Maziello, and after some sloppy Lecce defending, Antonio Sanabria did well to volley past Gabriel. At that point, Lecce had conceded 75 goals this season, which is nearly 2 per match. In the 24th minute, Lecce again made claims for a penalty after Saponara went down in the area, but again it wasn't given. Gianluca Lapadula nearly equalized before the break, Saponara did well to find Lapadula, who chipped over Mattia Perin, but Romero headed clear off the line. Saponata begged for a penalty as Perin appeared to crash into Lapadula after the chip. Things got really heated after Lucas Larraguer gave Saponata the finger. A member of the Lache's staff was shown a red card. VAR reviewed the play and confirmed that Perin indeed fouled Lapadula so the penalty was given. Mancosu stepped up to take the penalty and unbelievably one of the best penalty takers in the league blasted his shot over the bar. He did the same thing against Lazio a few matches prior. Lecce did get their equalizer in the 60th minute, this time Genoa conceded possession cheaply. Maziello cleared straight to Del Orco. He played it to Mancosu, whose cross went all the way through to the goal. There was a bit of a mix-up between Romero and Perin on this one. Perin never called for the ball, but Romero left it for him. After the goal, Mancosu shared an emotional embrace with Saponara, who I'm sure was telling Mancosu that he had atoned for his missed penalty. Genoa retook the lead in the 81st minute on a Gabriel own goal. Substitute Philippe Yagello curled his shot around an outstretched Gabriel. The shot hit the upright, then bounced off Gabriel and ended up in the back of the goal. Lecce were extremely unfortunate here, and you really have to feel for them if they end up getting relegated because of a goal like this. Rounding out the week, Brescia defeated Spal 2-1 in the relegation derby. With that loss, Spal can no longer mathematically achieve safety, so their relegation to Serie B is now confirmed. That'll do for part 2, in part 3 we'll review Napoli's win over Udinese. Okay, so let's review Napoli's win over Udinese. Welcome to Napoli against Udinese. Gotti, the uh, Udinese coach. It's Udinese who get the game underway here. Trying to hold it up. The cross almost reaches Lasagna. The pulls through. And Udinese have the opening goal. Down the line. Insigne, can he get on the end of this? He does! Inside Callejon! Hey, Mr. Glorious Chance. Didn't really get behind that at all. Still there! It's poked in! And it's the new entry. Milik with his first touch. He's equalised. Anointing with a challenge. Lasagna goes back to Larson. Inside to Deport. But that's the last kick of the first half. And it's all square between Napoli and Udinese, one apiece. Luca Gotti. It's Napoli who have got this second half underway. Now last chance. Oh, what a strike and what a winner. Napoli right at the death. It's Politano into the top corner. 
What a way to win the game! It seemed destined to finish in a draw this match, despite the two excellent chances at both ends. That's the final whistle here at the San Paolo. Napoli have beaten Udinese by two goals to one. So as you heard, this one finished 2-1 for Napoli. As we always do, we'll start with the lineups and assess individual performances. Udinese's starting 11 had only two differences compared to what we projected. Juan Musso started in goal. He was very busy, but of the seven saves he made, he was really only tested twice, once by Mario Rui and the other by Piotr Zielinski, whose shot he tipped off the bar and out. The back three were Bram Neutink, who we didn't think would be fit to play, but he was, Sebastian De Mayo and Rodrigo Bacau. The wingbacks were Marvin Ziegler, which was the other player we missed, and Jens Strieger Larsen. The central midfielders were Wallace, Rodrigo De Paul, and Seco Fofana. Rodrigo De Paul had an excellent performance once again. He scored Udinese's only goal in the match, which we'll get to in a bit, and he had a chance later in the match that Koulibaly cleared off the line. Finally, up top were Kevin Lasagna and Ilya Nesterovsky, who started in place of the suspended Stefano Okaka. This was a fairly quiet match for Lasagna. With the way Udinese plays, he doesn't get too many opportunities, so when he does, he needs to capitalize, and Lasagna's been good at that lately. Prior to their match against Lazio, he had scored 6 goals in 5 matches. His one opportunity in this match came in the 69th minute, and he took it well, but Ospina kept it out. Nesterovsky did an admirable job filling in for Stefano Okaka. He had a goal ruled out for offside. Gattuso went with a lineup that we pretty much expected. David Ospina got the start over Alex Meret in goal. Besides that save on Lasagna, Ospina made a very good save on DePaul just before the break. Thankfully, Nesterovsky was offside on his goal, which was a header from near the top of the box that Ospina really should have done better on. Again, like against Bologna, I thought he was too deep in his goal, which for a keeper means you have a lot more ground to cover. At the back, Mario Rui returned to his normal left-back role. Rui tried getting forward, but Udinese made it really difficult for him to penetrate their congested midfield. His play was generally positive, though. Early in the first half, he played a lovely ball over the top to Insignia, but Insignia didn't make good contact on the shot. He also had a couple of attempts at goal. One of them was immediately after the Paul scored. Rui came back the other way, and his curling effort from outside the box forced a good save from Musso. He also tried to chip the keeper from midfield in the second half, but Musso read it and made the easy catch. Elcid Kusai moved over to right back to give Di Lorenzo a rest, which wasn't something we projected, but certainly didn't come as a shock. There's been a lot of drama with Kusai and his agent saying that they want to leave, and then they want to stay, and then wanting to leave again. But with all the playing time he's getting, I'm beginning to believe the reports in the papers that Gattuso wants to keep him, especially because he's flexible enough to play on both sides. Kusai was quietly good in this match. He got forward quite a bit and was part of the build-up to the game winner. However, I also think he had a hand in the DePaul goal, but I'll get to that in a bit. Kaladu Koulibaly returned at centre-back alongside Kostas Manolas. Koulibaly had another excellent match. He was usually the one to clean up the Udinese clearances. In the 84th minute, he took a goal away from Rodrigo De Paul with a clearance off the line. The clearance nearly went into his own goal, but hit the upright and stayed out. We thought Maksimovic would start because Manolas struggled with a cramp in the previous match, but he was fit to play. Like Kusai, he didn't have much to do. He did make an important tackle on Ziegler in the first half to stop an Udinese counterattack. In the second half, it was Manolas' poor clearance that landed for Lasagna for the opportunity that we previously mentioned. In the midfield, we picked the wrong side of the coin on the toss-up between Diego Deme and Stanislav Lobotka. I can't help but think that Lobotka might just be overtaking Deme as the starting regista. We did pay a lot more for him, after all. At the moment, I still rank Deme higher because he plays with more tenacity, 
We saw that in this match when Demet took out Fofana on the counterattack. One thing I like a lot about Lobotka though is he rarely makes mistakes. Fabian and Zelinski completed the midfield. I thought neither Zelinski nor Fabian blew me away in this match, largely because Udinese congested the midfield. Zelinski did draw a yellow card on Bacal. The way Bacal was playing, I was almost expecting him to get a second yellow at some point in the match, but he did not. Then of course Zelinski nearly scored in the second half. Musso got a hand on Zelinski's shot in the 60th minute, which then hit the bar, bounced down on the goal line and stayed out. The goal line technology showed that the ball was just barely on the goal side of the line, but you have to see green between the ball and the line, so this was clearly not a goal. With Fabian, his most important play was picking out Milik on Napoli's first goal, I was expecting him to be looking for Insigne and Callejon on the wings, especially Callejon's run to the back post, but we surprisingly didn't see too much of that in the match. He also had an attempt in the second half that wasn't too far off target. Then up top, Gattuso started what I would consider his first choice attacking trio in Insigne, Mertens, and Callejon. Neither Insigne nor Callejon did much to impress me. Insigne had a few shots in the match. We mentioned the one where Mario Rui sent the long ball. His best attempt was a rare header, but it was straight at Musso. He had another attempt early in the second half that didn't dip enough and went over the bar. Mertens came off early after taking a knee to the tailbone, so Milik replaced him much earlier than he normally does. It did work out though, Milik scored on his first touch of the ball to equalize. I wonder if Gattuso spoke to Milik after the Bologna match because he looked far hungrier in this one, especially in the first half. In the second half, he did fade a little bit. Milik picked up a yellow card in this match, so he will be suspended for Napoli's upcoming match against Parma. Callejon did very little in this match, he had a few shots blocked and a volley that missed the target. Callejon was replaced by Matteo Politano in the 70th minute which proved to be a smart decision. Politano scored a golazzo in the 95th minute to win the match for Napoli. There was a really nice exchange between Kusai, Alan and Politano in the build up to the goal. We've talked about Gattuso borrowing Sari's tactics, this was it right here with the triangles on the pitch and one touch passing. Politano's finish was exquisite. It was a hard and accurate shot off the post and in, leaving Musso no chance of making the save. Politano couldn't have picked a better moment to score his first goal for Napoli, and the first thing he did after the ball went in was run to Gattuso on the sidelines and give him a hug. So next, I want to quickly go over Rodrigo DePaul's goal. I think generally speaking, this goal was a result of poor communication. Specifically, you can actually blame four different players on this goal in my opinion. DePaul was left completely unmarked, so the obvious people to blame are the midfielders, and indeed Piotr Zielinski was in the area but marking no one. You could also point the finger at Lorenzo Insigne, who was standing right next to DePaul when he made the run, but Insigne was slow to react, which is why you see Insigne run into the shot late. It could be that Insigne was expecting either Zielinski or Mario Rui to pick up the run, which is why I say the goal was a result of poor communication. I mentioned that Zielinski was marking no one, and I'll get to Mario Rui in a second. The other two players that you could blame are Elcid Kusai and Stanislav Lobotka. This goal started with Neutink passing to Ziegler on the left wing. Both Kalihon and Kusai collapse on Ziegler, who passes to Nesterovsky on the wing. Instead of following the run, Kusai casually jogs back, I think because he thought Lobotka would pick up the run, but he did not. As a result, Koulibaly had to come over to the wing to mark Ziegler, so when Ziegler plays the cross, Mario Rui has to shift to mark Lasagna in front of the goal, and that leaves the right side of the box open for DePaul to run into, and he put it away. A few closing comments on the match. We knew Udinese were going to sit back, let Napoli come to them, and then counterattack. Knowing that, I was rather disappointed with Napoli's approach. 
I would have liked to see them attack on the wings more. When they did, it seemed to be quite effective, but most of the time Napoli tried to play the ball up the middle. I also thought Napoli did a great job of pressing Udinese in their own half, which often led to turnovers. However, there were a few nervous moments. One of Napoli's Achilles heels this season has been their struggles defending the counterattack. In the preview, we talked about fitness levels and Udinese's lack of depth being an advantage for Napoli. It turns out that was a non-factor. Perhaps it's because of Udinese's style of play that they naturally conserve their energy. Udinese did not make their first change until the 82nd minute and they only used three of their available five substitutions. The last thing I'll say is that Gattuso has definitely improved the mentality of this club. In the past, this match would have finished 1-1 and by around the 80th minute, I couldn't help but think the match would end that way. But under Gattuso, they just keep playing. Though it took a screamer from Politano, Napoli rarely wins matches at the very end like they did in this one. In fact, Gattuso commented on this in the post-match conference when he was asked if the goal is to finish in 5th place. Gattuso's response was, In Bologna, I got angry because I saw a poorly organized team. I am interested in the mentality we have to keep balance and have good ball possession. I want a mentality and a lot of commitment. So that's our review of Napoli Udinese. In part 4, we'll preview Napoli's next match against Parma. Okay, we'll close the pod with a preview of Napoli's match on Wednesday against Parma. So let's start with Parma's most recent match against Sampdoria. Bruno Alves was ruled out after failing a fitness test ahead of this match. For Sampdoria, Federico Bonazzoli and Manolo Gabbiadini, who had both combined for five goals in their previous two matches, started on the bench. In the early stages of this match, Parma dominated play and they opened the scoring in the 18th minute. Bartosz Berzinski committed to heading the ball out, but it was out of his reach which allowed Gervinho to take the ball down, cut into his preferred right foot and blast the ball into the roof of the goal. In the 24th minute, Gianluca Caprari thought he doubled Parma's lead on the rebound after Aldero made an excellent save on Klusevski. He didn't celebrate the goal as he's actually a Sampdoria player currently on loan to Parma, but after a VAR review, the goal was ruled off as Caprari was in an offside position when Klusevski took his shot. Sampdoria didn't get their first attempt at goal, not on goal, at goal until the 39th minute of the match. In the 40th minute, Caprari picked out Klusevski's run on the right side. He was given acres of space to run into, which was never going to end well. Klusevski took the shot with his weaker right foot and was a bit fortunate that Berezinski's block went into his own goal. The second half was a completely different story. 
I don't know what Ranieri said at the break, but Sampdoria started the half very positively and only two minutes into the half, Julian Chabot scored his first of the season from the corner kick. Fabio Calirella equalized in the 69th minute. Morten Thornsby did really well to control the ball and dribble around the Parma defenders before laying it off to Calirella. Calirella was fortunate that his shot took a slight nick off the head of Simone Jacopini to dip over a helpless Luigi Seppe and into the back of the goal. In the 78th minute, Federico Bonazzoli put Sampdoria ahead. Bonazzoli came in off the bench to score his fourth goal in three matches and completed a lovely give-and-go with Qualiarella. Though Parma does have a penchant for late drama, they did not equalize in this one, which finished 3-2 for Sampdoria. Remarkably, that's Sampdoria's fifth win in their last six matches. The Blue Cercati now have a 12-point lead over Lecce and the head-to-head advantage, so with four matches remaining, Claudio Ranieri's men will not be relegated. Meanwhile, Parma have collected only one point in their last seven matches and have dropped all the way down to 14th, one point behind Sampdoria, which means mathematically they could still be relegated. So that brings us to Parma's next match, which of course is against Napoli. I'm probably stating the obvious when I say that Gervinho and Dejan Kulusevski are Parma's most dangerous players. They are similar to Kevin Lasagna and Rodrigo De Paul, who we just saw in the Udinese match in a few different ways. First, they don't need many opportunities to punish you. Second, they don't need much time or space to punish you. And third, they have quite a bit of pace. Gervinho, like Lasagna, is the type of player that can make something out of nothing, and Kulusevski, like Rodrigo De Paul, is both a goal-scoring threat and a playmaker. Like against Udinese, one of the keys for Napoli in this match will be defending the counterattack. This was something Napoli really struggled with in the Udinese match, and it nearly cost them. If you recall, the last time these two sides met, which was actually Gattuso's first match in charge, Parma won the match on the last-minute counterattack. Another takeaway from this match, again probably an obvious one, is that no lead is safe for Parma. As dominant as they were in the first half, the Sampdoria goal early in the second half really got to them and they looked like a different club than we saw in the first half. So both of these points go back to Napoli's mentality. If Napoli score first, they need to stay focused and play the full 90 minutes. This Parma squad has scored late equalizers and winners time and time again this season. If Parma score first, Napoli will need to keep their heads held high and keep playing. Earlier in the season, this was a real issue for Napoli, but under Gattuso, the squad mentality has improved quite a bit. We saw that against Udinese. Not only did Napoli concede the first goal, they also scored the late winner. Okay, so those were our takeaways from the Parma-Sampdoria match. Let's take a look at the starting lineups. Like Udinese last match, Parma have a thin roster for this one. Matteo Scozzarella picked up a knock against Bologna, and Andreas Cornelius and Bruno Alves both picked up injuries against Milan, so none of them played in the Sampdoria match. For that reason, I expect Parma to field a similar squad to the one they played against Sampdoria. Other than the bizarre 4-4-1-1 that Roberto De Versa fielded against Bologna, which failed miserably, Parma prefer the 4-3-3. Ricardo Galliolo and Simona Jacoponi have been De Versa's most reliable players, so if Bruno Alves is still out, I expect them to occupy the centre-back roles. Two out of Giuseppe Pezzella, Vincent Laurini, and Matteo Darmian will complete the back line. If I had to guess, I'd say Pezzella will start at left back and Laurini at right back, like we saw against Sampdoria. The midfield is the most difficult to project as Diversa has rotated quite a bit there. We've seen Juraj Kuczka, Hernani, Yasmin Kurtic, Gaston Brugman, Alberto Grassi, Antonino Barilla, and Matteo Scozzarella have all shared playing time. I mentioned Scozzarella likely won't play. Kuczka and Kurtic are interchangeable on the left side. Kurtic has started three straight matches now, so I'm inclined to think that Kuczka starts on the left, but it wouldn't shock me if they both start, as Kuczka does have the flexibility of playing on the right side as well. Gaston Brugman seems to be the preferred choice in the middle, and on the right, between Barilla, Grassi, and Hernani, I think Hernani gets the start. 
Up top, Gervinho and Klusevski are fixtures on the wings. At striker, Gianluca Caprari looked good against Sampdoria, so I think he starts again with Cornelius out. And if it doesn't go well for Caprari, then more than likely he will be replaced by either Roberto Inglese or Jan Caramo. For Napoli, I think we're going to see a bit less rotation from Gattuso in the home stretch. He's made it quite clear that these upcoming matches are preparation for Barcelona in the Champions League. Gattuso has done an excellent job of rotating because of the condensed schedule, and as a result, he's kept injuries to a minimum. After Parma, Napoli plays Sassuolo, Inter, and Lazio, which are great tests, even if those sides are perhaps not fielding their best 11 at this stage in the season, and with the top four just about locked up. So starting in goal, I do generally feel that Gattuso will continue to alternate goalkeepers, which means Alex Meret will start in goal. At the back, I only expect to see one change, which is that Di Lorenzo should return to the starting 11, and Kusai, who's been a great resource, should move back to the bench. So that means a back four of Di Lorenzo, Manolas, Koulibaly, and Mario Rui. We've previously talked about the three-man rotation of centre-backs, so we could see Maksimovic start over Manolas. In the midfield, I only expect one change, which is Diego Demet to start over Stanislav Lobotka, alongside Fabian and Zielinski. The big mystery is who starts up top, particularly at striker. Arkadiusz Milik is suspended for this match due to a yellow card accumulation, and Dries Mertens is doubtful after leaving early in the Udinese match. I'm half tempted to suggest that perhaps Gattuso tries a 4-4-2 formation with Insigne and Lozano up top, but given what I've said about preparation for Champions League, I do think he will stick with the 4-3-3. Insigne will start on the left and Matteo Politano alternates with Callejon on the right, plus he deserves to start after scoring that goal against Udinese. We'll see if Fernando Llorente is added back into the 23-man roster, but even if he is, I don't expect him to play. He hasn't played a single minute since the Juve match in January, and he only played a single minute in that match. I think it's far more likely that Lozano gets the start in the middle. In terms of the betting odds, Napoli are 1-2 favorites, Parma are 4.5-1 underdogs, and the draw pays 3.5-1. For my prediction, it's hard to pick anything other than a Napoli win here, as Parma have 6 losses and a draw in their last 7 matches. However, they have managed to score in every single match since the restart. Meanwhile, outside of the Coppa Italia matches, Napoli have failed to record a clean sheet since the restart. I think the outcome of this match really depends on whether Mertens starts or not, but I'm not going to cop out and make two predictions. I'm going to say that Lozano starts over Mertens. As we saw against Bologna, Lozano to me is more useful as a substitute than as a starter because he excels when playing on the counterattack. Granted, that was a bit of a hodgepodge lineup, so I'm really interested to see how he plays with Insigne, Politano, Fabian, and Zelinski around him. We know that Napoli have struggled to defend the counterattack, and that their opponents don't need too many opportunities to score. So for those reasons, I'm going to make a bit of an underdog prediction and go with a 1-1 draw. I'll give the Parma goal to Gervinho, and for Napoli, I'll take Politano to build off his goal against Udinese and score another one here. So that's my preview of Napoli versus Parma. That will also do it for episode 28. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I ask that you take a few minutes to give us a 5-star review and send us your feedback. The feedback really helps us to tailor the pod for our listeners. Keep an eye on Twitter as well. In the upcoming weeks, we plan to post a couple of polls to see what our listeners want to hear. As far as ratings go, what that does is it helps to increase awareness of the pod, which means more listeners, more downloads, and ultimately it motivates us to keep putting our best foot forward. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5, or you can find the podcast at Forza Napoli Pod. We'll talk to you again after the Padma match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre.
Ay, ser el aire merece a yete, tu sayado. A dos, tu cor ingrato que un dispiete, fame no po. A dos, lo fuego coche más si fuye, el asta está. El un te corre a pie, son un te destruye, su la guarda. Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.